continuing today in uh, our series in the Gospel of Matthew and I'm going to begin with a question and the question is do you like change? Do you like change? Some people do from the front row here. Some people enjoy new experiences and they find unpredictability in life exciting. If you're a regular here, think about where you're sitting right now. Is it pretty much where you always sit? Yeah, probably yes. See, many of us are creatures of habit and we are naturally resistant to change. We don't like upheaval and we feel more comfortable when things are just like they were before. Think about moving house, starting a new job, getting new inexperienced colleagues you got to work with, facing new challenges you've never had to deal with before. All these things have been shown to actually increase our stress levels. And I say all this because our passage we're going to read from Matthew's Gospel this morning finds Jesus facing every single one of those changes I just listed at the same time. So for Jesus, gone is the familiarity of the family home with mum's cooking. Jesus is moving from Nazareth to Capernaum. Gone is the security of his settled job as a joiner, skilled joiner. Jesus is now starting work as an itinerant preacher with no regular income. Gone is the safety net of his dad's experience and expertise in the workshop. Jesus, the teacher, now has four new assistants, all of whom have only ever known manual labor on a fishing boat. That's his colleagues. And gone for Jesus is the quiet life where he can go around unnoticed. Jesus now cannot go anywhere at all without hundreds of needy people all desperate to get a piece of him. That's a lot of change in a very short space of time. But Jesus is going to handle all that stress amazingly well. Not least because, as we saw last week, his preparation in the desert has made him exceptionally tough and resilient for any change that comes his way. So let's pick off where we left last week in Matthew's Gospel. Going to read uh, chapter 4. And we're reading verse, verse 12 to the end of the chapter. When Jesus heard that John had been put in prison, he withdrew to Galilee. Leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum which was by the lake in the area of Zebulun and Naphtali, to fulfill what was said through the prophet Isaiah, land of Zebulun and land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people living in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. From that time on, Jesus began to preach Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. As Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and his brother 
Andrew, they were casting a net into the lake for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. At once they left their nets and followed him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. They were in a boat with their father, Zebedee, preparing their nets. Jesus called them, and immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness among the people. News about him spread all over Syria, and people brought to him all who were ill with various diseases, those suffering severe pain, the demon-possessed, those having seizures, and the paralyzed, and he healed them. Large crowds from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and across the region across the Jordan followed him. So, Father, we thank you for this passage of Scripture we're going to look at today. We ask that you just fill this room with your presence. Let the Holy Spirit move amongst us as we look into your word. May we find great riches here, Lord, and may we know the experience, the beautiful experience of you speaking to us, you whispering to us, you challenging us. We listen to you, Lord. Speak, Lord, your servants are listening. Amen. Well, this is the start of Jesus' ministry, as I said, and it begins with Jesus having to absorb the ominous and disturbing news that his cousin, John the Baptist, has got into a bit of a scrape with King Herod and is now behind bars. Now, John the Baptist is a victim of what we call these days cancel culture. It's a phrase that's just really come to light in the last decade or so. And we think of cancel culture as a 21st century thing, but actually it's been around for a long time in some form or another. Cancel culture is when powerful elites treat those who say things that they deem unacceptable or taboo. And anyone who does not tow their party line has to be muted and shamed and shunned and tainted. And our self-righteous society judges and cancels people all the time for their perceived wrongdoing. But listen, Jesus never cancels anybody. Instead, Jesus only cancels the wrongdoing of those who come to him in faith. And then he restores them. He puts them back together. He makes all things new. And that's what grace is. Isn't it just a beautiful thing? That's what it is. That's what we celebrate here. Well, I want to say I see four things in this passage of Scripture today for us. And I'm going to call them obscurity, simplicity, community, and authority. So firstly, obscurity. If you've ever been on a holiday to Israel, you'll probably have spent, especially if you're on one of these guided tours, you'll probably have spent a week down south, around about Jerusalem, which is where the yellow star is, and a week to the north in Galilee, which is where the blue star is on the map in front of you. Now, Jerusalem 
now, as in Jesus' time, is a noisy and bustling and crowded and claustrophobic kind of place with ancient walls and dirty streets and busy markets uh, and political tensions. Same today as it was then. Jerusalem then and now is where all the culture is located, where all the big religious sites are, temples and mosques and things, where the, all the power is concentrated and where all the money is. But Galilee, then as now, breathes a completely different kind of air. It is quieter, it is more scenic and much more rural. And many people live in Galilee as well as Jerusalem, but it's noticeably more sparsely populated because it's a much larger area. Now, the mindset in Jerusalem down south is narrow and nationalist compared to the north. And throughout the Gospels, what we find is Jesus will be hated and opposed pretty well every time he goes down south, but he's very popular in the more cosmopolitan, in the more mixed north in Galilee. And that's why they called it, a little bit contemptuously, Galilee of the Gentiles, of the nations. Uh, it wasn't a, a strong nationalistic Jewish sense Galilee. And no one prominent or famous ever came from Galilee. It had no real cultural, historical, or religious significance at all. In fact, there was nothing noteworthy about Galilee whatsoever. But around 750 BC, the prophet Isaiah said that one day something of unparalleled magnitude would come to pass in Israel. It's in Isaiah 9. And Isaiah 9 talks about the depressing spiritual darkness that had choked the life out of God's beloved chosen people, the Jews. And Isaiah said that this heaviness would one day be lifted. A child will be born, he said. And God is going to give a son to his people. But it is not going to happen where everyone expects it to. Everyone thinks that should be in Jerusalem where all the power is. He said it will come to pass in Galilee, the very last place in Israel an Orthodox Jew would think of. And this dazzling light, this bright new day, is going to dawn in the back of beyond. Now to put this in terms that we can maybe understand or relate to better, think of London. London, our, our world-class capital city with its Buckingham Palace, with its Westminster Abbey, with its uh, Parliament, with its Harrods, with its Royal Albert Hall, with its National Gallery, its Tower of London, its West End, its Old Bailey, its BBC Broadcasting House, its Emirates Stadium, its Wimbledon, its Wembley. Imagine a prophetic word over our nation where God says, a bright new day is going to dawn in Britain for a great and mighty ruler will arise and behold, he shall come from Barnsley. The Bible says that God purposely chooses what we see as weak and foolish and lowly and despised over what we see as wise and strong and impressive. That's what God is like. And if ever you feel unimportant or unimpressive or insignificant, 
or worthless or written off. If you ever say to yourself, who am I would, that God would take a second look my way? Remember that he chose the unimportant backwater province of Galilee for Jesus' public ministry to absolutely change the world. That's who he is. Obscurity. Secondly, simplicity. Verse 17 says, well, it actually contains the first recorded words that Matthew records anyway of Jesus' public ministry. Nine simple words in English. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. There's a story about a, a vicar and his long-suffering congregation uh, at the end of a service. You know what it is? You all file out, you shake the vicar by the hand. So there they are, they're all walking out, they're saying, nice sermon, vicar, and so on, and you know, have a nice week. Until someone stops and says, I want to thank you for your sermon, vicar. I've never understood that subject, and I still don't. <laughs> but now I, under- I don't understand it at a much higher level. And I love it that Jesus didn't go around with a complex message that only intellectuals and boffins can understand. Jesus is straight talking. He is unpretentious. Now, as we've just seen, it's a really dangerous time to go around saying the kind of things that John the Baptist said and get you in prison. But if you compare chapter 3, verse 2, which summarizes John the Baptist's teaching, and chapter 4, verse 17, which summarizes that of Jesus, it is word for word exactly the same. Repent, comma, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Exactly the same. So Jesus starts his ministry with this threat hanging over him of what's happened to his cousin John the Baptist. He starts his ministry utterly fearless and totally unfazed by threats. Jesus is unfazed, unconcerned by the real and present danger he has of arrest and imprisonment. Isn't that wonderful? That's our saviour. There are over 80 different instances in the Gospels where Jesus talks about the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God. It was, with no exceptions, his favourite subject, the kingdom. And the kingdom means, kingdom of God, it simply means God's way of doing things. That's the most simple explanation, definition I can give in modern English. The kingdom of God is God's way of doing things. And when Jesus said it's come near, he's saying that with him around, with Jesus on the scene, the powers of heaven are breaking into our world and they are shaking everything up because God's way of doing things is now coming to pass. It's like two giant tectonic plates colliding together and causing a sort of spiritual earthquake. There is, though, Jesus said, one thing, one thing required of us in response, and the word is repent. Repent. Repentance is a misunderstood word. We tend to think that it sort of means feeling bad about what you've done, but it's a lot more than that, and it means more than saying sorry as well. It even means more than being sorry, repentance. When my satnav says, stop when you can and do a U-turn, which it often does because I'm often ignoring it, it's actually telling me to repent. Stop when you can and do 
a U-turn. That's what, what the word repentance means. It means acknowledging that my default disposition is rebellion against God. That is what I am. And then having acknowledged that, I need to radically turn around and change course so I'm no longer in rebellion against him. There needs to be a shift in thinking and there needs to be a radical change of direction in all of our lives. That's what Jesus is saying. And maybe someone here today is feeling in their heart right now that today is the day that things are going to change. It's time to stop. It's time to turn around. New thinking, about turn, new direction. I did this for the first time when I was 17. And because I'm a sinner or have been a sinner, I've often had to do it, repeat the, the thing of repentance. But when I was 17, for the first time, I abruptly changed the course I was on. I pointed my life in the opposite direction and I began again by the grace of God. And it was the best thing I've ever done. Absolutely the best thing I've ever done. And not once since that day have I ever regretted turning from the direction I was on and giving Jesus the keys to my life. Obscurity, simplicity, and then community. Community. If anyone was ever qualified to operate as a one-man band, it was Jesus. When you think about it, he is the Son of God, perfect in every way, easily the most amazing figure in human history. Anyone joining his team is only going to make it worse, aren't they? But isn't it wonderful that Jesus makes it crystal clear right at the outset of his ministry that his way is to work with and through other people. You and I get to be on his team. Isn't that cool? And when you do, when you're on the team that Jesus captains, everything changes. Jesus says, leave your nets to these guys. Leave your nets. Forget fishing. Join me. We're going to fish for much bigger ones. You know, fishermen talk about, oh, I've got one this big. We're getting six footers here, Jesus says. Over the years, many Christians have said to me, all my values have changed since I started following Jesus. You know, material things have just become less important to me. And people have become so much more important. It's just an inner change that God has operated in me. So when Jesus calls out to these four guys, who's going to be on my team? Without hesitation, they leave everything behind, their jobs, their security, their homes, and they say, I'm in. Count me in. I want to be on your team. When you read Matthew's Gospel on its own, you can get the impression that this is the first time that Jesus meets these men. But when you read it alongside John's Gospel, you get a different chronology and you see that there uh, was um, a time where they had met Jesus already about the time that John was baptizing uh, Jesus. So this isn't some sort of brainwashing cult sort of power over personality. Peter, Andrew, James and John have already seen Jesus at work. They've had time to consider him. They've weighed it up and they have concluded that he is the real deal. We know that Peter at this time was married because in chapter 8, Jesus heals his mother-in-law. 
So it seems that Peter left everything to follow Jesus without even consulting his wife. I wonder what uh, she thought about that when he got home. Ladies, those of you who are married here today or have been, what are you thinking when your breadwinning husband comes home and tells you he has decided to pack everything in and start walking around the country with this guy he spoke with this morning? (laughs) Amen? But it seems that Peter's wife is an amazing woman of faith too. And it seems that she joins this traveling band of disciples herself because Paul mentions her and many other women actually as part of a wider group of disciples that followed Jesus. He mentioned this in 1 Corinthians 9.5. He said, Do not we have the right to take along a believing wife? This is on itinerant ministry going from place to place. Don't we have a right to? As do the other apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Peter. So it seemed that they brought their wives with them and they accompanied with them on their missions. I know a guy called Mark, or it's actually pronounced Mark, because he's from Paris. And uh, the first time I met Mark, he was director of acquisitions and mergers at a major international bank in the city of London. Pretty high-flying job. And it's while he was living in London that he... Uh, first signed up to do an Alpha course and it absolutely changed his life. Uh, A few years later, he left his very highly paid, very prestigious executive job to become director of the Alpha course in France, which sounds very high and mighty, but um, it wasn't at all. Uh, Now, was that a sign of madness or was that a proof of faith? Well, his colleagues... JP Morgan were in no doubt at all. They thought he'd absolutely lost his mind. Uh, To quit a lucrative career in high finance, to go and build up a Christian ministry in the land of Voltaire and Diderot and Jean-Paul Sartre, where organized religion is in catastrophic decline, that is just irresponsible. That's what they thought. It's bordering on lunacy certainly career suicide. But God blessed his his step of faith in amazing ways. Under his leadership in the first five years alone, the number of registered Alpha courses in France grew from 30 to 350. In all denominations and in every region of the country. Humanly speaking, to achieve such a rate of growth under God, Mark had to work really hard long hours. He had to make himself sacrificially available. He took no salary. He took no expenses even for traveling. He went up and down the length of the country, breaking into his savings and living by faith. That's not easy to do when you've got a growing family, three children I think he had, and a mortgage. Somebody once said that ships are never safer when they're in a harbor but that is not what ships are made for. They're made to go out on the open seas. And Mark, like many people before him, heard the voice of the Lord say two words, follow me, and that was enough. He stood up to follow Jesus without looking behind him or around him. 
I can't think of a single example. I've read the Bible through several times. I cannot think of a single example anywhere in the Bible where God ever asks anyone to do something easy. But as we've been singing this morning, God is faithful. God never lets you down when you step out in faith. The Lord provided for all Mark's family's need, needs and he blessed, he blessed, blessed that step of faith so many times over. Now sometimes the call of God comes to us slowly over time and it's like a very faint whisper. In fact, you're not sure if it's God or not. Other times it is sudden, it is clear and uh, it seems to have been the case uh, here for Mark and it certainly was for these guys in Matthew's Gospel. But however the Lord speaks to you, you're like a ship that's not made for a harbour. You were made for adventure. And are you going to be audacious? Are you going to take risks? Are you going to stand up and push the boundaries and follow wherever he leads Because Jesus is still looking for people who are ready and willing to step out in faith. Now, three times in this short extract I read earlier, Matthew says that people followed Jesus. Foreigners as well as locals, uh, large crowds as well as individuals, men in their prime, and anyone else leaving everything behind. Finally, authority. Uh, Jesus' words about the kingdom are not just words because Matthew shows us that they were always accompanied by works of power. A few years ago, someone I know was training to be a church leader in a major denomination. And he posted the following status on a status update on Facebook. And I had to copy this down and keep it. I thought, I'm going to use that in a sermon one day, and here we are. He said this, Just had a lecture on missiology, which included a very broad and incisive view of the church and mission. The orientation themes were placed in a new context. We looked at a view of critical correlation and the questions we need to bring to Scripture and the view we have of the world. Then we spent time with social cognitive discourse analysis on the wonder of the hybrid person. We even looked at epigenetics and how the church can suppress who we truly are, yet in embracing our DNA, we can be freed to bring that part of our humanity to the light. Hands up if you understood any of that. (laughs) Hands up if that's the sort of thing that gets you out of bed and into church on a Sunday morning. Good grief, this makes me so angry, this sort of thing. Why are we training people to empty our churches up and down the land? It makes me so cross. Why do we fill people with this pretentious garbage and say, you need to give that to the church? We should be training future church leaders to lead people to Christ, like Jesus did, lead people to God. We should be training them to shepherd straying sheep and to connect with ordinary people and to heal the sick and to drive out evil spirits and to mobilize every believer in the church in their care. That's what Jesus did in Matthew 4, 23 to 25. Jesus encounters people suffering with various diseases. Some are in severe pain, Matthew says. Some are demon-possessed. Some have seizures and 
Others are paralyzed. These are serious, even hopeless conditions. And two millennia later, there's little or nothing advanced modern medicine can do to treat that kind of complaint. But when Jesus is around, it just says he healed them. Perhaps it was his social cognitive discourse analysis about the hybrid person and epigenetics that made such an impact on the crowds. There's a church in West Yorkshire that grew out of a few people coming to faith at a food bank. Isn't that wonderful? And uh, it became a spiritual home to quite a few homeless and marginalized people, recovering addicts, ex-offenders, and the like. So it was a bit colorful, this church. And in the early days, there was one year, I think it was the third year in, they baptized over 100 people in a year as the Holy Spirit fell upon them in power. And one evening there, there was a Wiccan high priestess who visited that church. Well, have a look at this. And she was standing at the back of this gathering, it's called Saturday Gathering, this place, as they sang that song, This Is Amazing Grace. And as they were singing this, she found she could not move. She was rooted to the spot physically as waves of love and grace from the Lord just washed over her. And she met with a living God that day. And she immediately renounced her life as a Wiccan. That's repentance. And she started to follow Jesus. And she actually became a key member of staff there. Another Sunday, uh, there was a report. It, was, it all started to kick off one Sunday. I mean, we're very well behaved here. But there, there were phones ringing all over the place with distracting ringtones. There was a group talking in one corner very loudly amongst themselves. There was even a fight breaking out in another corner and all this was during the worship time and prompted by the Holy Spirit the band just stopped everything mid-song and they explained that they felt they needed to pray against the spirit of distraction and as soon as that happened the Holy Spirit came in power upon this gathering and their worship time was followed by uh, um, um, a visitor had given his life to Jesus the worship was electric Another man had been healed of lung cancer, which was later verified by doctors in that meeting. That's what it looks like when the kingdom of God comes near. It's amazing, isn't it? It's beautiful. And this is what Jesus does, not just a long time ago and a long way away, but right here, Jesus' authority in England in the 21st century. Pray we see it more and more. There's literally a line actually in the Lord's Prayer that our children are going to be learning that asks that we will see that more and more. Your kingdom come. That's what we want to see, isn't it? Some of you are nodding. Great. True story to end. Okay. Uh, a British agriculture student was researching efficient farming methods around the world. How do you get the best out of the soil? Uh, how do you maximize your yields? How do you cut costs? How do you farm more sustainably? And part of his research took him to Australia, home to one of the biggest farms on planet Earth. There is a sheep farm there in the outback. It's about the size of Yorkshire. 
and uh, it's a big county, Yorkshire. You drive up the A1, it takes you an hour to get from one end to the other. And his staff have to travel up and down the farm by helicopter. Now, how on earth do you manage the logistics of a farm as vast as that? How can you keep an eye on even half of what's going on? But when he got there, to his astonishment, he found that there are no fences and no hedges on this farm. So you've basically got a 12,000 kilometer square kilometer open sheep pen. That's what it is. And he asked the people on the ground there, how do you stop your livestock from wandering off? And the Australians just laughed. And they said, we don't need fences. They said, the sheep always gather around the watering holes. And they never move far away from where they can drink. All we need to know is where the wells are. That's where the sheep will be. And I want to say that Jesus is just like that farm. And any church with faith and life is like one of the wells. You're at a place this morning, friends, where you can drink. You can drink. Come to Jesus. Come to the Lord, the one who gives living water. The one who turns up in obscure and surprising places like Galilee. Galilee. And maybe like converted carpet warehouses in the scruffy part of Darlington. The Lord is here. If you were Anglicans, you'd all say, His Spirit is with us. It's part of that. The Lord is here. His Spirit is with us. So come to Him, the one who speaks a simple but life-changing word that God is doing a new thing. His kingdom is at hand. So it's time to reformat our lives so that we don't miss out. It's time to repent so this kingdom can be what we experience. Come to him, the one who is calling individuals and crowds alike into his new community. If you listen, he is calling you right now to follow him wherever he goes. Is today the day you do that for the first time ever in your life? I'm going to stop what I'm doing. I'm going to turn around. I'm going to start following Jesus. Or is today the day you turn back to him? Maybe you've drifted away a bit. It's time to come back. Come back today. And come to him, the one with authority to heal. Bring to him now your broken heart your broken mind, your broken dreams, your broken body, your broken family. Kingdom of heaven has come near.